Watson. Yeah, right, yeah. Hello. Hi, Marsha. You just had a baby. Yes, like my really wife. really recently. My wife did the uh, job, really. But, uh, yeah, eight weeks ago. Wow. Yeah. Tiny. Um, well, actually, it's quite big for a baby, but really small for a, for a human. How's yeah. the sleep deprivation going? It's not too bad. Actually, last night was rubbish. If you're listening, Kit, last night you were rubbish. But in general, he's been quite good. Some people are quite unlucky, much unluckier than this. Like, he wakes up quite a lot. And basically, I'm quite like a zombie. But um, you see some people who've got babies about his age and they do look like Vietnam vets. So I think it could be worse. But it's not just the night. It's, the day is quite difficult as well. That's my tip when I'm having a baby. Don't think it's just about sleepless nights. It's also about terribly disrupted days and um, a level of sort of exhaustion so great that you um, don't feel like a human anymore. I'm briefly interrupting to let you know that I'm Marsha from yesyesmarsha.com and this is from a series of interviews that I did from 2009 to 2011 called Marsha Meets, which were long-form interviews with stand-up comedians that eventually inspired the book Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. That book's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. Back to the interview. Well, I was going to ask about this because I've got a couple of friends that have had babies in recent months and I pretty much just don't talk to them because they're so busy. But you, Mark Watson, generally you're the busiest comedian I've ever encountered in terms of the stuff you've done. But even at the moment, you've just written a book. Yeah, it has actually been... um, I haven't done anything that cool for a few weeks, mostly. If you looked at my CV for the past few weeks, it would be mostly just changing nappies and stuff. But I've managed to keep a little bit of a normal life. Me and my wife are both trying to cling on to normality. But actually, what you do miss out on is, as you say, just talking to friends because pretty often someone phones you, but you can't really pick it up because you've got poo on you or you're dangling your child in the bath and if you answered the phone call, you killed your baby. (laughs) So a lot of what goes is just these tiny things. Like suddenly it's harder to talk to your mates, it's harder to keep your house clean. The basics of life become a bit more difficult. Sometimes you sort of you can't really go for a week because you, you've got the baby. It's the nuts and bolts of life start to sort of go a bit. But this is the hardest bit. Apparently, it does get easier. Right. Hope so because it goes on for sort of the rest of your life. Yeah. You've got <laughs> if at least it doesn't get easier, years. then we've got a big job on our hands. But also, you've taken on other projects. One of them is this blog. Yeah, it's really stupid. I, I decided to write a blog every day for um, well, I, for ten years. I've ended up saying I'd do it. I meant to start it as a blog that I would carry on for 10 years, but not necessarily every day. But I have done it every day since, I think it was February the 16th or something, a week before the baby was born. So it's by far the most stupid thing I've ever done to start a daily blog when a lot of the day I haven't really got time to have a cup of tea or anything, let alone do a blog. But I I always sort of believe the more busy you are, the more you get done, as they say. That's what I learned in school. If you take on slightly too much, then you'll just somehow find a way of doing it or you'll have a nervous breakdown. But also with your blog, like a lot of people do a blog every day and Richard Herring does one every day and it'll be kind of, Mm. this is what I got up to today. He's been doing it for years, actually, yeah. Yeah, but yours is a little more ambitious. It's very interactive. Yeah, well, yeah, I started it just thinking it would be just like a normal blog, but then um, the more people start leaving comments, the more you feel like you have to sort of not just reply to them, but also I set up a lot of like competitions and things that people can join in with, then they do it, then that spawns a lot more admin. I'm thinking of taking on some staff to do my blog, actually, because... um, the better the blog goes, the more reaction there is to it, the more I feel like I've sort of got to keep it going, which is what I love doing, really. I love sort of um, setting up things with audiences and then just carrying it on and on. But it does mean what started as just a sort of... Um, I saw it as something I could just do in, like, five spare minutes every day, but it takes about eight to nine hours a day now, unfortunately. So tell me about some of the projects. You've got this iPod thing. Yeah, well, basically, um, I did a blog a few weeks ago 
where I said, I was talking about Six Music, in fact, and I said, obviously it's a real shame that it's, the BBC shouldn't kill it off, clearly, but still, you can always find your own music. I basically wrote a blog encouraging people to just look for their own music and not rely on them, you know, being told what to listen to. But I didn't want to sound like some sort of music snob, so I said, in fact, I'll buy an iPod and give it away as a competition prize on my blog to the person that can demonstrate that they need it the most. Because I thought it's all very well for me to write a blog saying, we don't need the radio, we've got MP3 technology, but a lot of people can't really afford it or haven't got the inclination to. So anyway, basically what I'm saying is, I bought an iPod, did a big competition on my website, a lady called Anna won it by all you had to do to win it was just convince me that you needed it most that you were the most deserving case but loads of people well not that many but about a hundred people entered not that many for like a competition on the telly but a lot for a competition where it's just me dealing with it i felt like blue peter where they had they used to have that big basket of um postcards from kids so i narrowed it down to five people and then got people on the blog to vote for the best one and the best one was this woman called anna who um used to be a big like manix fan in the 90s and then had, has now got a baby, about my age probably, or a bit older than me, and um, basically she was terrified she was going to become middle-aged and her son would hate her for being uncool. So she successfully made this plea for it. But by this time, about 70 or 80 other people had entered the competition, so I got them to log their addresses, and we've now got a thing where the iPod is going to be passed around the country between everyone who entered the competition till it ends up with this woman in Essex. Three people have organised the map, the route around the country, because I was starting to go bonkers. So I bought the iPod, I've given it to a girl, she took it up to Scotland yesterday, and now it, it will work its way around the country. I think it'll take till about Christmas. And what, do they add songs on? Everyone adds one song to it. Right. We've even bought a USB stick as a backup, in case, because sometimes if you sync the iPod it goes wrong. So we've got a plan B, is what I'm saying. So all that can go wrong is one person in this chain of 70 can just nick the iPod and then it's over. <laughs> right. And that's probably what will happen. <laughs> I'm trying to do it as a sort of optimistic thing, like, oh, I trust you people, you're all good people, I bet everyone's going to join in with this. But since it's just a blog, I can't really track any of these people. If someone in Scunthorpe just takes it, then it's over, basically. But it'll be an interesting social experiment anyway. And then also you do this agony art bit. Yeah, that was a stupid idea. I started because a few weeks ago I, um, I needed help with something, I can't remember what it was, but I asked the answer to a specific question or something so I said while I'm at it why don't I help you a bit why don't you like, send in I just set up a problem page basically because I'd noticed that a lot of people comment on the blog would ask like um, what are your tips for being a stand-up or um, writing novels and stuff so I thought I would just invite general questions but then loads of people sent in questions about you know relationships and stuff like that which a more humble person would have said oh this is not really my place but instead I decided to answer them all so um, I now run this sort of occasional um yeah, Agony Aunt column on my website, basically. I really enjoy it. I've got no qualifications. It's great doing um, something like giving advice on subjects that you don't know anything about. Sometimes people will just ask stuff like, um, I'm thinking of moving down to London from Lincoln. Do you think I should? Or things like that, which I'm fairly comfortable with. But other times, people have given me like really enormous emotional queries to deal with. But I just sort of think, well, someone's got to sort these things out. A lot of these people are kind of 17, 18. I'm 30. I might as well have a crack at it. And uh, two people have met through this problem page and they're going on a date soon which uh, gives me a lot of satisfaction yeah of course it could go badly wrong and then that would sort of be my fault but um i am playing god a little bit <laughs> but it's great i think being an agony aunt is really fun i don't see why it should be confined to these people who do columns in newspapers basically that's the thing a blog is just like having your own newspaper so i get to do all the things that i would have liked to do but didn't get to like having competitions Ten years ago, one man couldn't have a competition or set himself up as an agony aunt. But now, if you're 
power craze maniac you can and i have so you kind of have this little community i mean if people are yeah. all meeting each other and yeah i find it really rewarding because the internet is incredible the way it brings people together like that but often it just brings people together to sort of scream at each other like you see so much horrible spite on the internet i didn't really do it to, to start to have a community but i did a bit actually because i used to do these 24 hour long shows and the best bit of that was like setting up these things stupid stuff like this thing with the ipod but in 24 hours there's not that much time whereas over 10 years i feel like by the end of it as a community we could have done some incredible stuff but it's also quite a i'm sort of joking about the idea of carrying on for 10 years but at the same time i'm sort of serious i probably will which will mean that all these people reading it will be at a different stage of their lives by the time so if anyone stays with it for the whole 10 years then it'll be quite moving at the end i think probably have to have a party or go away i think i suggested going away on holiday together actually at the end of the 10 years (laughs) but I didn't know how many people were going to be reading it at that point. It could be really difficult logistically. Well, it could be particularly because part of the reason you're kind of able to do this is is having this, I guess to a certain extent, if you have like a public presence, then more people are able to get involved and it's, you know, yeah. more fun the more people are involved. But you've done like a lot of telly stuff now. Well, I've done quite a lot, but the useful thing is people um, still see me as a bit of a sort of underdog, I think, because I'm not, like if you're as famous as someone like Michael McIntyre, there's no way you could spend your time, you couldn't put on your website send me your problems, your life would be ruined. Whereas I'm lucky that I'm well-known enough that I can do stuff and put something on my website and I know that people will read it. But I'm not so well-known that people go a bit mental. That's the other thing. Like, if you're at a certain level, you get sort of quite dangerous fans who, if you start revealing stuff about yourself on the website, then it will soon come back to haunt you. Whereas I'm at the stage where I have some really nice people who sort of follow the website, but I don't think any of them are sort of insane. But do you get any weirdies? Like, do you get recognised now? Are you well a bit, but not? I don't know. This is partly what my new show's about, in fact, because um, I get recognised quite a lot. But normally, people don't know my name. Quite a lot of people look at me in the street and and think, I think I've seen him. The show is called "Do I Know You?" because people are always saying, "Do I know you from somewhere?" And it normally is from the Magnus advert, which means that I have this sort of odd life that's not really like being famous, but it is slightly more inconvenient than not being famous because uh, people are constantly sort of giving me really long looks. But then I can't tell if it's because they recognise me or it might just be for other reasons. It spikes when I've just been on something like Mark of the Week or I did that Channel 4 comedy gala or for days after that you notice like a certain level of recognition. And sometimes people talk to me. My favourite moments are like sometimes someone will just say, oh, I'm, I saw you live, I really like you. That's lovely. But it's a bit sinister when you look at each other for ages trying to work out if you do or don't have a relationship. At least if you're really, really famous. If you're Jonathan Ross then definitely everyone that you ever meet knows you which is freaky but at least you know that but I'm in this weird hinterland where people might know who I am or they might not have a clue but more likely they're sort of know a bit like I went to see a doctor last week and he listened to my radio show he obviously he'd never seen me he'd only ever heard the radio show he was an old guy he just listened to Radio 4 so um, right at the end of the he just sort of examined my ligaments and stuff and then he said so are you the Mark Watson that's on the radio and it's moments like that you think that's weird you've been sort of poking around my body for 10 minutes but all this time you've probably got a podcast of me at home so it's a bit weird yeah but I mean I really like it but um, it's just a bit of a weird stage to be at yeah I get sort of a certain amount of attention but not all of it is proper attention a lot of like about three quarters of the conversation I have are people trying to work out who I am well a lot of the stuff you've done is like featuring things like Mock the Week and Have I Got News For You and 8 Out of 10 Cats and Buzzcocks you hosted yeah you end up being like sort of that guy off that thing aren't yeah. you they can't... and you have done your own stuff you've done two series of We Need Answers yeah that's the thing where I've had the most kind of control over it but then that was on BBC Four so not as many people saw it whereas the things that I've done that have been massive like Buzzcocks or 
have a good news for you you're just one person among a few would you be into doing more stuff that's more is that a thing that you would try and keep an eye on or are you just up for doing whatever's um... i think i should be massive yeah i think um well i think the main thing i like doing is doing things where i'm in control of it and i know what i'm doing basically so i love doing we need answers because that was our show and i loved hosting Nevermind the buzzcocks because as the host you feel like you're sort of on top of it whereas being a guest on the panel show is quite stressful you don't get to talk much especially get... with the ferocious there's quite a lot of yeah you can't see this on the podcast but she's sort of doing this thing like with claws as if to say it's, it is like that sometimes you fear you will be on mock the week that bit we have to go up to the microphone it's not unknown for people to come away with injuries and with shows like that you just do them and it's obviously a really useful thing to do and it's good and everything and it's nice to be on but you don't feel that you're representing yourself very well whereas things like we need answers it might be not as many people see it but you feel like this is my thing and that's the thing about the blog as well it's a think about a thousand people or something read it maybe not that many but at least you feel like this is 100% me unless someone hacks into it because they do turn out to be an obsessive fan with we need answers we've had alex horn on the podcast we've had tim key talking about it quite a lot it's just in case someone hadn't heard that and hasn't seen the show can you describe very quickly what the concept of yeah firstly you've been very careless because there were 13 episodes so you really should have watched it by now but still i'll humor these people um Basically, there were three of us, me, Key and Horn were the hosts, and there's two guests. So it's, that's one of our gimmicks, is that there's more of us than actual contestants. And um, all the questions come from these people that you send a text to, the AQA, 63336. So all our questions came from the archive of questions that the actual public had texted in. So the questions would be, some of them would be general knowledge, but more often it would be something like, we had a question that was like, if a snail and a mosquito left Nottingham at the same time and travelled around the world in different directions, where would they meet? Things like that. Or if you filled a condom with water, could you fit it over a mini or something like that? We weren't allowed to ask it on air anyway. A lot of the best questions the public asked we couldn't have, obviously. So basically the questions are almost directly from people's actual text. It means they're all in the format of text as well. And um, rather than having comedians, our contestants were people like Esther Ranson or Peter Tatchell, Jermaine Greer, just really unusual quiz show participants, mostly really brainy people that we could then ask stupid questions to. Jenny Murray was on from Radio 4. We had quite a lot of intellectuals, but we would then ask them questions like... Um, because they were texted, the questions were often things like, I'm stuck in a canoe, what do I do here? Or, you know, questions with real-life stories attached to them. Or, can you eat a seal? Or things where you would think, what has possessed someone? To, is this just a pub dispute? Or is this question going to have ramifications? So it was like a combination of a proper quiz show and a bit of shooting stars and a bit of texting. And it was born out of this late-night show that you did in Edinburgh. Yeah. And the impression that I get, having seen the late-night show and then having watched the programme, is that you kind of got left to your own devices a lot more than people usually would. Yeah, we were. I mean, the late-night show was absolute mayhem. It was at midnight in Edinburgh, and we all did it after our regular shows. And um, with the best will of the world, we'd all be tremendously drunk, apart from Horn, who was sort of like the team leader. But me and Key were always pretty much drunk when we did it. And it was never meant to be a TV show. It's just meant to be a stupid thing we could do in Edinburgh. But as soon as TV executives start hearing, people say, oh, that could never be on TV. It's at that point they think, all right, we'll make a TV show of that. So it became a TV show almost by accident. And we were left alone quite a lot. We weren't allowed to do things like, um, we weren't allowed to swear as much. There was an awful lot of swearing in the live show. And a lot of, quite often, there'd be like, Key would end up throwing eggs at the contestants or there'd be fights or some of that had to be taken out. And a lot of the ruder questions were taken out. We were a bit more sober. But in a lot of ways, we were allowed to just... It's the most ramshackle show that there's been on TV, probably, because it was a lot like a live show. So for that reason, some people loved it, and some people just thought that we shouldn't have been allowed to do a TV show like that, which is great, I think. I do a lot of things like... 
Mock the Week or Buzzcocks where it's like pretty safe and controlled and you know it's going to be pretty much fine. It was quite fun doing a show where some people, it was a real cult thing for them and other people just thought we were absolute dicks. I find that quite exciting. Tim Key also, when he was on the podcast, was talking about how he started out doing Footlights with you. He wasn't actually a student. Yes, he got into Footlights by fraud. He um, was living in Cambridge because he's older. He's about three or four years older than me. We all auditioned as Cambridge students for the um, supposedly prestigious Footlights but he claimed to be a postgrad, did an audition, got into the show, and then when it was too late, he then revealed he wasn't a Cambridge student. I think he's the only ever non-student to get in, and he did it by lies. He was also talking about how, so you did that Footlights, and you went up to Edinburgh, and actually the show got nominated for Perrier Best Newcomer, but then he was saying how when he started doing stand-up, he did straight stand-up at the beginning, but the two of you would go out, and he basically sucked, and, and you were amazing. Yeah, <laughs> I sort of ruined his life, in fact. That's why he is the way he is now. Well, it was difficult, because I was always more of a stand-up, and he was much more of a character person. So when we were starting out, we were just like right out of university, I was just doing my five minutes of stand-up, and it would go well. But he would be trying to work out something that he could do like a character that could be five minutes he did a character with a yo-yo for a bit where he's basically doing stand-up but with a yo-yo that didn't really work out he did one where he was a russian character he did one where he used to like charge about the stage pretending there were other people there yeah it never worked but it was obvious that he was brilliant but at that point he hadn't stumbled on the poetry but a lot of the best things he's done have been such big substantial things whereas i just had gags so we would go to these competitions together and i would get through and he wouldn't and um he'd be beaten by people that were basically rubbish. And yeah, he used to get quite disheartened, but it was more just a case of finding what he was good at. <laughs> Do you remember... As you say to a kid at school, <laughs> sort of a bit behind the class. What was the first stand-up you did? Can you remember your very first yeah, stand-up show? Yeah, it was at college, in fact, and I there was meant to be a professional comics night. One of them pulled out, and I'd recently done a comic play or something, so the organiser basically begged me to do some stand-up, even though I'd never done it before. And... um I knew it would be mostly my mates in the audience, so I did it, and that was fine, but it was hard to tell whether it was just because it was my mates. So I made myself enter this competition. So my first proper gig was in Cambridge, but not in the, it was at Anglia Polytechnic University, and I was really terrified. I just did five minutes, but it went all right. I don't think if, if it had not gone well, I mean, Key had a lot of resilience in the early days when his gigs weren't, but also he sort of knew that he was doing character. He had loads of, he always had so many ideas, but with stand-up was my only sort of idea in terms of comedy so if my first gigs had gone badly I think I'd have never carried on because it, it's such a cruel game really but I was fortunate that the first one I did the audience were students and they were quite nice Do you remember what kind of stuff you talked about? Oh it was terrible I mean looking back it was rubbish the um, jokes were not too bad unfortunately I can remember because I was once on a crap programme called something like Stand Up Britain on ITV where um, they went all around different regions of the country and you had to so this is very early in my career I was 22 I had almost curtains my hair was so long like a fringe and I always wore a beanie on stage at that point basically I just looked like a dreadful man and had this very pronounced Welsh accent which I've since sort of phased out and I would not even move at all I was like I had no stage skills but the actual jokes were all right I used to do do you remember those, those army adverts where it was all about how you, you can't I don't think I could be in the army I used to basically take the piss out of army adverts and police adverts and I had a joke about soldier law it was all right but I find it really embarrassing to watch now, but then I find it embarrassing to watch myself in general. So that's... The Welsh accent thing? Yeah. Well, basically, my parents are Welsh, and I grew up sort of partly in Wales, got, got quite a lot of Welsh family, so I had a natural bit of a Welsh lilt in my voice. And when it came to stand-up, I thought, it's too embarrassing to talk in your own voice, so I'll do an accent. And um, I'd done a Welsh accent. I was in something like a Midsummer Night's Dream, I think it was, or some play at Cambridge. That's a good way to sound like a tosser, actually. But yeah, I was in a Shakespeare... <laughs> 
at Cambridge, I was in um, some Shakespeare and I couldn't really act, so I was allowed to do it in a sort of Welsh... It was some, like, comic cameo or something. So that was the only accent I could really do, so I thought I would do this kind of persona, but I didn't think it would matter because I didn't think uh, the stand-up would work out. And then the more gigs I did with this accent, it got about that I was a Welsh comedian and then I sort of had to keep it going. And I was going to the clubs where it was really useful to have a Welsh accent because it gave me this, a hook. But the next thing you know, I was on. it was online, I was being reviewed as Welsh... I was routinely doing like interviews with Radio Wales. I got invited to a dinner for like outstanding Welsh people in the arts once, and that's when I thought this is going. I can't really do this. I once I also auditioned, not only auditioned for, but got a part in a pot noodle advert in Wales. Pot noodle, fuel of Britain, and all the other actors were Welsh, but also spoke fluently. I can speak a tiny bit of Welsh, but they were all just bantering in Welsh, and I thought, oh dear, this is. Uh, this isn't going to work out either. So did you have to, when you did, like, say, the advert or when you did the clubs, in the bits between when you were chatting to other comedians? Were you well, just... yeah, with the advert, I just came clean to everyone. And it didn't, no, of course, no one cared. In fact, a couple of them also weren't Welsh, but they, they were just sort of better actors than me. Um, in the clubs, though, I would sometimes preserve it for the whole night because my accent on stage was so, is like, so, it was like Max Boyce type accent. And I felt like if I came off stage and just chatted normally to people, sometimes one time a bloke gave me a lift home and I spoke in that accent all the way home. <laughs> from like Liverpool or some about four hour drive and I was like yeah no stop the services if you like because I just thought I'm I'm gonna once you've started a lie it's more embarrassing to stop it than it is to just keep it going so it it was like being sort of slightly psychologically disturbed at times I would spend a lot longer talking in my fake voice than the real one it was a real relief to get home to my wife um, well, in fact, I was going to talk about how when you started doing stand-up, you kind of hit the ground running. But one of the things, you won very early on, you won the Daily Telegraph Award. Yeah. But you also came second in So You Think You're Funny. And yeah. one of the people that you beat was Rod Gilbert. Yeah, that's right. In fact, I was sort of the bane of Rod's life in those days because he, of course, was Welsh. And so we both of us ruined it for the other because we, we both had this thing of being Welsh, except I didn't really. And his his style was very different then. I was quite animated, as I always have been, whereas he was very, very deadpan, absolutely deadpan, stood stock still and just delivered. So he was almost robotic, his delivery, which meant that I often came out better if the two of us were both on the bill because I was like the cheery Welsh guy and he was the sort of depressive Welsh guy. And you could almost guarantee whoever was on first out of us two would go well. And then when the other one came on, the audience would think, oh, I've seen a Welsh guy. And it just so happened that I kept being on before him. So for about five years of his life were ruined by me getting there minutes before but in that final he was on before me but I still yeah I came second the bloke who won it was by far the best out of us his name was Matthew Osborne and out of us all like me and Rod and Greg Davis, people, like Greg was, Davis in was in that final Nina Conti Nina Conti and the, out of that generation Matthew Osborne was probably the one that everyone thought would be the sort of star really funny posh guy posh character but also actual posh man and he won the competition and he was tipped, but then he just didn't really want to do it anymore and he just didn't bother. <laughs> I think he still does gigs, but he just had no ambition. He worked in Fortnum and Mason and he was perfectly happy doing that and he just couldn't be bothered to be a... I, th- I believe he still is doing clubs and stuff, but he was absolutely brilliant. So these competitions are quite illusory sometimes because um, someone seems to be clearly the best, but they've got no intent. Like me, he just entered it on a whim and when he won it, it was two grand, the winning... the. And I remember for his speech, he said, um, well, of course, it's all about the money, really. And then I'll now be able to afford to rent my flat for a bit longer. And they just disappeared and it wasn't seen again. <laughs> After all the talk about how it was the competition launched the careers of great comics, but it had been won by someone that didn't give a toss about being a comedian, just going to go back and spend it on his rent. 
Well, you went on after that and did... So you mentioned earlier the 24-hour show, which I hadn't realised, but you did that before. Am I right in thinking you hadn't actually done a proper Edinburgh show? Yeah, I've done... I've, well, I ended up doing seven of them, two in Australia and wow. five in Edinburgh here. Why did you do the first one? How come you did know, it in the really. first place? It's true, the first time I'd done it, it was before no one knew who I was, and I had not done a full Edinburgh show. I suppose I thought, if I'm going to do an hour, I might as well do 24 hours, really. Like, it, now it looks like a massive, like, attention-seeking, look-at-me sort of thing, because it became quite well-known. But it wasn't what I... I didn't think it would be. I thought it'd be the opposite. I thought hardly anyone would... I thought it would just go almost unnoticed. I was really doing it just for myself. I just had the idea. I was once just walking around the house, and I said to my wife... Um, then girlfriend imagine if you did a 24 hour long show and she said that's a great idea which was something she came to regret because she pretty much hated every minute of all seven of them because she found it just really stressful and exhausting and she would worry about my health and stuff but all that was to come at this point she thought it was a great idea so once she'd agreed that i should do it i just did it and um because i wasn't well known and didn't have any profile there was no pressure on it at all people thought i was just some deluded moron that and everyone thought i would get to about like two and a half hours and then including me i didn't 100 percent think i could do it but then of course the longer it went on the more people thought oh he's gonna do it so it gathered it started off with about 50 people which was even that was a lot more than i thought i thought that virtually no one would know but because it was edinburgh it attracted the attention of people but then word got around and by the end there were like 250 people or something and it had built up during the 24 hours and i proposed to my girlfriend at the end of it was that an intention no i haven't planned it it was intentional when I actually said it, <laughs> but uh, it wasn't what you'd call an accident. I don't think she likes to see it like that, but I certainly didn't intend... I was very tired, though, you've got to remember, <laughs> and um, emotional, and I was sort of... I was going to propose, but it might have been another year at least before I did it. I surprised myself, but it was a great way to do it because, well, not everyone would want to do it in front of hundreds of people, but it was quite... I imagine a lot of people, you propose, and then they say yes, and then you're like, okay, great, um, and that's sort of it, and then you have to ring people. We didn't have to tell anyone because... Uh, by the time we got out of that room, pretty much everyone we knew had already found out. Her dad found out reading it on teletext. <laughs> and um, it was like so-and-so unknown comedian Mark Watson has just completed the 24-hour show. At the end, he proposed to his girlfriend. And um, my future in-law thought, that's interesting, that's my daughter. It was the same night, but she, he's the sort of bloke that's always on teletext. And after that, it was never the same again because, I mean, I, I did loads of them and it was always really fun. But there's nothing quite like the first one because after that, I knew I could do it. Although I then did a 36-hour one again because I wanted to make it harder. But then I stopped doing it longer and longer then because I was going to die. And how did the logistics of it work? It's not well, just you for the whole 24 no, hours, right? No, basically I would just go on at the start, talk for ages to sort of get everyone into it. And then like there were a lot of guests. People like Tim Key would be there for sometimes for almost the whole thing. In fact, I think the first one he did do the whole thing. And then I would bring a lot of other comedians in. But it was never official. I never had like a bit where I would say, and now over to so-and-so because then it wouldn't really be me doing it. So it would be more like a, just a constant, a bit like this, really. I just talk rubbish for ages. And like with the blog, I would set up these big things like, OK, who can go out and come back with the biggest thing, beginning with the letter B or something, stupid competitions. So you keep loads of those going. And it's one of those things where the longer people stay, the more fun it is as well, because then everything becomes a reference to something that's happened nine hours ago. I never imagined it like that either. I thought people would just come and go. But instead, it attracted really hardcore people who made it their business to stay for the whole thing. And they would bring teddy bears and sleeping bags and stuff. By the end, people would come with like provisions for the 24 hours, all of which was great. But it did mean that I had to keep it going. Like I would hardly ever leave the stage, but now and again, I would hand over to someone for sort of 10 or 15 minutes. But I couldn't really let it descend into complete chaos. So I would always try and keep it as a as one long rant. And you did, well, you said you did your last one last year. Yeah. I didn't want it to keep going until it's one of these things where people think, oh, is he still doing that? I wanted it to still be a bit special. 
Plus, as I mentioned, my wife always found it quite upsetting because I would always get quite worried about it beforehand and I'd be knackered after. While it was happening, she was worried that I was going to not drink enough. So partly out of respect for my health and for her and to stop it from being boring, I've, I'm not going to do it anymore, except I probably will in like a few years' time. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you said before that you weren't ever going to Yeah, I did sort of, but this time I actually called it the last ever 24-hour show so that it, now it would really, be really embarrassing if I did anymore. But I think if I leave it for like four or five years, I could go back to it. But I have to think carefully about it because it's kind of fun if you're doing it as a sort of lovable underdog. But I don't know, like if I'm 35, it might just look a bit like I'm sort of some middle-aged guy trying to relive his former glory. So I don't know, maybe it's over. Every year at Edinburgh, you do loads of stuff. So, you know, you've often done like your show and then the 24-hour show. You had We Need Answers for two years. Uh, You did this crap at the environment project. Well, basically, I thought it was time to get better at the environment because I was never I like it was in the year it was in 2007 and there was so much stuff on the news about it, and I saw an inconvenient truth and I thought it's probably time I did something so again a bit like the blog I'd set up an environment blog and I tried to set myself an environmental challenge every week but really small stuff like try to go one day a week without eating meat or not use anything made of plastic that sort of stuff and then I would get other people to do the challenges as well it would work better now because now I've got more readers at the time it was a tiny little thing but for me, it was quite good. I gave up flying as well for a bit. And like on my tour, I cancelled all my flights and did it all on. Not that difficult because I was only going within the country. But well, I suppose still quite difficult, actually. In Australia, it was harder. I did a lot of really long coach journeys and stuff. And then as part of that, I did a show in Edinburgh where I um, saved the world, actually. Saved the planet by doing it. It was a 24-hour show, but we did stuff like planting trees during it. And I think it's the only Edinburgh show where the whole audience has gone to a tree plantation, I think. And yeah, like it was sort of about like forcing myself to do stuff that would be a bit more green and more responsible and partly about just getting other people involved, but in a really fun way because I'd never had any interest in the environment because it's boring. So I thought as a comedian I could try and make it more fun. What was the Al Gore thing? Um, because of that, when I was in Australia, I got asked to go on this course with Al Gore where he trained about 100 people to give versions of his lecture, wow. um, his, his Inconvenient Truth lecture. And um, most of them were proper, like, environmentalists or people that knew what they were doing. But they wanted a few people that were just like me, idiots, basically, to sort of take the message to the general public. So because I was a comedian, I got to do it because I claimed... I applied saying, oh, I'll be able to do shows about it and I'll be able to... And then I was surprised to get it. It was one of these things where you you apply and it's a bit frightening when you do get picked. So I went on this course in Melbourne with Al Gore for three days. And then last year I did a series of lectures where I basically took his lecture but tried to make it funny, but without... um, ruining it and how was Al Gore about you making it funny like was he kind of precious about it at well all no I mean I only met him I was there for three days but I only spoke to him one on one once and I said I'm going to do a comedy show about based on this and he looked at me for a long time without saying anything and he sort of muttered hmm comedy and I really felt small he's a big guy as well I felt but then I think they sent him a tape of me doing it in Australia and uh, like it's all quite you know cheeky and irreverent but I don't change the science or change any of the it's more just like a light-hearted take on it so I think he's fine with it because um his main thing is just trying to reach as big an audience as possible and um he's even got some jokes in them um, in his talk but he's done it like 5,000 times so he's they're getting a bit thin now I think even for him whereas for me I um got the advantage of being able to say stupid stuff so I think he kind of it's probably quite useful, yeah. So there's stuff up about that on your website, which I will mention again at the end. It's markwatsonthecomedian.com. Yeah. But if you if someone's listening and because you know I'm like you in that it's only in the last few years I've started doing stuff, but I'm a bit clueless, but I don't find it interesting enough that I want to buy a big chunky book. But if you could tell people to do one thing, is there one thing? Well, actually, yeah. What I'd suggest is switching to green power in your house, which you can do really easily. 
you just go to a website. Well, the one I use is called Ecotricity, but there's three or four of them, and they just replace your energy supply with one that's um, from green energy and doesn't cost any more. In fact, I think I pay a bit less now than I used to pay to British Gas, but it just means that it comes from renewable sources, and it's really easy. You just click and fill out a form and stuff like that. But I definitely recommend that. I, I think that I mean, most things you could do are pretty small, but something like that, if enough people did it, then more and more energy would come from green source and that would be a good thing so okay. i would do that i think yeah as i said there's one called ecotricity but there's several of them if you just like google green energy then you there's quite a lot of cheap ways to do it and then yeah i think that's a good thing to do okay. and also i would i reckon it is worth taking a train rather than um even though it's now possible to fly again if you're going like london to edinburgh or something or manchester people fly from london to manchester I reckon they could afford to cut out pretty much all domestic, all internal flights because it just seems a bit stupid to me. But do you know what else I always think about Edinburgh? Because I used to live there, is that by the time you've waited for check-in yeah, and schlepped yeah. to the airport and then schlepped back You don't save much time, really. You've got to be there an hour before. It takes an hour to get out of the airport. And Edinburgh airports are way out anyway. And a lot of airports are miles out, whereas the train ride to Edinburgh is all nice scenery up through the... And then you're right bang in the centre of town. So I think you only save about... And it's cheaper on the train if you book it in advance. So I do think they're not going to ban all domestic flights, but give it a go. People say, obviously, if you don't get on the plane, it doesn't matter because someone else, the flights will still run. But eventually, quite a few flight routes have closed down because everyone just thought that's it. So I think it probably is worth trying it. Yeah. And talking of other projects that you did in Edinburgh, this last year you did uh, one of my most favourite things that's ever happened in Edinburgh, ever. And I've been going for 10 years. It was the hotel. Oh, that's nice. I didn't know you felt uh, that strongly about it. I really do. I I just thought it was totally amazing. Will you explain what it was? Well, yeah, all it was was it was a show, but you just turned up and we got this building and made it into a a, a massive great four-storey building, made it into a hotel like a sort of weird failed 80s hotel and then you went round it the audience was sort of shown in and then they had an hour to walk around it and different stuff happened in every room and that was it basically but there were loads of staff and basically it was like you'd wandered into a hotel but something was wrong so it was like an interactive sort of comedy show and in every room people would sort of there was stuff to do it was a cross between a comedy show and one of those museums where you get to do stuff or promenade theatre is what they call it in, in posh, but it wasn't really that because it wasn't really theatre. It was more just like a very weird show. Occasionally someone would come thinking it was a hotel and try and check in. Those Seriously? Were the best bits. Yeah. Seriously? One time this Dutch guy came and we showed him all the way around and <laughs> in the end he said, this is really cool, but my backpack is really heavy. And the poor guy, um, because everyone had to stay in character. So if someone came in and uh, thought it was a real hotel, we had no option but to try and actually make it work as a hotel and so also you should probably explain that it wasn't like come in and now there's a show in this room and come in it was like literally no, this it, is the fitness room there's a fitness instructor talking to you yeah we had little fitness. things that happened like you a fitness there's like a yeah a fitness instructor in one room there was a restaurant where you could um you know order food although it would never come there's a computer room so there's a lot of interactive stuff but it never felt like a, you're watching a show it just there were about 30 or 40 actors and they'd just been all given instructions to behave in a certain way for me it was like having like a big train set or something i just told everyone roughly what to do and then or it was like playing the sims or something like that i'd set it in motion and then every day i would watch and of course the more we went through the month the more it became like it was a hotel because the actors had been doing it so much they started to believe almost they were working in a hotel and everyone was wearing uniform and people started dividing up their shifts and basically behaving like it was a so by the end of the month it had almost become reality it was quite a fun experiment how did you get people on board for that well, there was a team of us who made it happen. The main guy was a bloke called Simon, the Invisible Dot, who um, also does all Tim Key stuff. And um, 
it's incredible in Edinburgh you can if you just say to people do you want to do a show you won't get any money but you will get to pretend you're in a hotel a surprising number of people we, we headhunted a few people for the key roles and then it was just a question of anyone that had the commitment but people people were amazing people would come from their other shows and be like still eating a panini but also changing into a bellboy and stuff you could only do it in Edinburgh really we relied on people just wanting to be involved and I was even in it quite a lot some days I would be a health and safety inspector some days I was the concierge some days I just walked around that's the thing it was, it was good because if people got bored of their roles you could sort of do other stuff and yeah it was really fun and it's just, it was a classic Edinburgh thing it would be hard to do it anywhere else although we are going to do it in London actually hopefully. oh are you really? yeah oh, amazing Simon who produces it is looking for he, we will hopefully do it in London um, but it would have to be in Edinburgh, you can have things like that where people just wander up. In London, it would have to be a bit more organised, I think. And also, we, it would be more difficult because in Edinburgh, it's like a fringe thing. Here, you'd have to charge... You'd probably have to pay actors and stuff to keep it going in London. But I think we will do it. And it, it's finding a building as well because it's not often you get to work with a four-storey building. It's this massive house, but for some reason, someone owns it, but they don't. They just lease it out. So it's the sort of thing you can do fringe projects in. So I think we're looking for a massive, empty, atmospheric building Ideally one that's already got loads of slightly mad people in it. Okay. That we can use as our star. <laughs> well, that's wicked. Maybe someone will listen to this and they'll be like, I have exactly that. Yeah, if you've got a building, a building that's already a hotel but disused, it would be ideal. <laughs> so there's tons of other stuff you've done, like you mentioned your radio show. You've done bits of writing for TV and radio as well. Keep yourself busy. You've got to keep yourself yeah, busy. Yeah, well, you? you are crazy. And you're only 30 as well, which is amazing. Yeah, yeah but that sounds quite old. It used to be you're only 27 and that was cool. <laughs> but suddenly... 30 is 30, you know. I'll but, die soon. Well, you made yourself really sick once from being so busy. Um, well, yeah, I got ill. I, I got a, a hole in my lung once, which is meant to be stress-related, and I had to go to hospital and stuff. Oh, um, my God. But I sort of... Um, I've always maintained it wasn't because of working too hard because people like my wife and my agent sometimes use it to persuade me to slow down. They say, your lung will open up again. But actually, it was just... It sometimes happens. If you're a tall man, then... It's just a spontaneous thing that happens at times of stress. Anyway, I got a hole in my lung. And um, it wasn't that serious, but it's really painful. But it's a great story to have because you've only got to say hole in the lung and it sounds really serious. And the idea that you work so hard you've got a hole in your lung makes you sound like some sort of like crazed, tortured artist. Yeah, but Mark, but considering actually, how much stuff that we've talked about that you've done... Mm. And all, you know, all off and all at the same time. Yeah. You have done a lot. Yeah, and this interview could be one one thing too many. <laughs> this might be, yeah. Uh, oh I'm just God. starting to clutch my chest a bit as we oh speak, man. in fact. Well, I like being really, I like doing loads of stuff. And I, I'm quite sort of restless. And um, I'll probably write a novel about this interview, for example. And um, and also, I'm quite sort of fidgety and nervous. So I am the sort of person that would get stress-related complaints. Do you think having a baby is going to force you to slow down uh, yeah I think it. so yeah because you have to do things like baths which uh, it's hard for even me to make an interactive show out of it really I suppose some people might there will eventually be a reality show which is just someone bringing up a baby and that would be a good sort of career thing for him as well but it's too late now so. <laughs> yeah I think it, it will slow me down for a bit and especially because my wife runs a theatre company as well and she does sketch comedy and stuff so we're both trying to work at the same time and to be fair the baby doesn't do a lot for himself it, it really is you have to give it to him on a plate he can't even eat it on the plate, in fact. So, yeah, for now, I'm definitely slowed down. But hopefully, I'd like to think that having kids will make me more sort of mellow and uh, I'll still be ambitious, but I won't go about things in quite so stupid a way. But you are going to Edinburgh this year? Yeah. What else have you got coming up? You've got a bunch of shows. I'm doing Edinburgh uh, for the whole of August and I'll be touring with that show for the whole of the autumn. In fact, it goes up to February 2011, the tour, which um, 
sort of makes you shiver a bit to think about that. And then I've written a book which is coming out in August as well. Which is about a radio DJ. Which is, in fact, yeah. How do you know that? Because I'm well researched. Yeah, it's impressive. (laughs) Yes, it is, yeah. And that is out in... It's about radio DJ who sort of... um, uh, Some stuff happens to him. This is pretty good. This is your third novel. This isn't just you going, and now I've been on TV, so I'll put out a book. No, I was, was writing novels sort of before everything else yeah like the, f- the first one I wrote when I was 22 or something and then it wasn't that good the other two I'm not that fond of actually but this one is alright I think okay it's called <laughs> 11 yeah when's it out? in August it'd be nice if it was the 11th of August but I don't think it will be but I am doing it, a book launch on the 11th of August in Edinburgh which is going to be a bit like not as long as a 24 hour show but I'm going to take the audience around various places and do readings and stuff like that okay I haven't planned it yet but it's definitely going to be it's quite stupid. And then a couple of gigs that, uh, well, one of them I said I'd mentioned because someone on Twitter asked me to, uh, Foolhardy Comedy. I, put, I always put out uh, yeah. things saying, have you got any questions? And they said, ask him about his Edinburgh previews and Hammersmith on the 30th and Les Square Theatre Show. On- yes, that's right. Well, since you ask, I'm doing a preview on May the 30th at Foolhardy Comedy in Hammersmith. Um, and also you've got a charity, you're doing a charity show in May. Yes, I am, yeah. Well, this is a long story as well, but my brother became the world's youngest international football coach. And he's now started basically an international team in the Pacific, in Micronesia. And he needs money to buy them a kit and stuff. Where is Micronesia? Um, It's a good question. It's sort of off near like Indonesia, the Philippines, kind of in the Pacific there. But it really is in the middle of nowhere. But he somehow managed to get 11 sort of islanders to form. His dream is to, well, he's already achieved his dream, really. He's become the official coach of this team. But he's now organised a friendly for them on another in Guam. And none of them have ever left the island before and stuff. So he needs basically to raise enough money to get the team there. And so we're doing this gig in May where we'll have different comedians and um, it'll be partly football based, but also people who hate football will like it as well. Do you know anything more about it other than... Well, it's going to be a mixture of sort of, we'll have some stand-ups on. Not quite sure who yet, but um, some um, big names. So like a mixture of stand-ups. And then I will also do some sort of improvised chaos like the 24-hour show, some um, games, maybe a song or two. Uh, whatever we come up with probably so it'll be like a mixture of a normal charity gala type thing combined with an evening of mayhem and that's going to be May the 23rd yeah May 23rd I think it's the Leicester Square Theatre okay. on May the 23rd but yeah. all of this stuff is um, up on your website and stuff it is. like In fact, that's, and the tour that's the only place it's up so you must have got this information from the website I yeah because I only put that up yesterday yeah and your website address is www. which is traditional markwatsonthecomedian.com markwatsonthecomedian.com yeah thank you so much but if you go on it you might end up sort of chasing an iPod around the country or something <laughs> yeah or telling me your problems thanks so much for coming along thanks Marcia Thanks so much for listening. If you like that, you'll probably love the book that I put together with Deborah Francis White called Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. So asking them things like, what's your writing process? How do you find your voice? What do you think about touring? How do you deal with hecklers? We interviewed 42 stand-ups, including Eddie Izzard, Sarah Millican, Phil Jupiter, Stuart Lee, Mark Maron. It's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. If you want to find out more, go to Yes Yes Marsha.com forward slash off the mic.